You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Today we are going to be discussing the book of Zephaniah. And Zephaniah, he was a prophet most likely in the days of King Josiah. And King Josiah was one of the, one of the rare good kings. So Zephaniah probably prophesied around the years 640 to 609 BC. So that puts him 20 to 30 years approximately before Habakkuk came onto the scene, who was the prophet we talked about last week. And uh, to be honest, Habakkuk and Zephaniah, they, they prophesy pretty much the same things, but with a little bit different imagery. Namely, they both prophesy that the day of the Lord is approaching for both the nation of Judah and all the nations around it for their many years of evil and and sin and rebellion against the Lord. But about the nation of Judah, specifically, Zephaniah writes to them on behalf of God. In Zephaniah 3.7, he says, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. So that's the story of Judah. We can see from this passage that God doesn't actually delight in disciplining them, though. He would have rather seen them prosper in the land he'd given them and and to receive his promises and blessings and live in his presence. But alas, they wouldn't listen. They wanted to live their own sinful way, and so they ignored the prophets, killed some of them actually, and in the end brought this chastisement upon themselves. Jesus actually expresses the same type of lament to Israel over 600 years later, when he says from Luke 13, 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. He's like, oh, how I wanted to bless you, but you simply would not believe and receive those blessings. Believe and receive me, he's saying. So it's the same story over and over again with them and with all of humanity, really. God desires to pour out his blessings and make covenant with his people, but like a stubborn toddler who won't eat her food, we cry, no, I hate it, right? And what we need to remember here. Is, is this truth, though, that, that God prefers giving mercy and blessing to his children, and that it's his children who have turned away from it? Because I think one of the biggest temptations or, or potential hazards in reading the minor prophets, especially when we read them out of context, is that with all this talk of judgment and wrath and discipline, we might start to get this erroneous idea that God dislikes us or, or that he loves his vengeance more than blessing us. Like he's constantly sitting on his throne, looking down on us, surveying the earth and just waiting to throw down his lightning and strike us down in our sin and shame. Or like he's the world's angriest principal, just waiting in his office 
for us to show up so he can suspend us, right? Or, or like a bitter dad who's always ashamed and never proud of his children. Or like an irritable boss who intimidates and threatens his employees with fear to get what he wants. Or like the photo raider guy, right, whose who's only purpose in life is to catch us in the act and give us a ticket. Or as Jeremy Treat writes, many people believe God's a grumpy old man who has to get his way. And then when he doesn't, he will shame, guilt, and scare people to get them in line. Although most wouldn't say it out loud, deep down, even many believers think of God as the God who is out to get me, that he is waiting for us to mess up so he can meet his divine quota for punishing sin. Perhaps this comes from a particular teaching or from a bad experience with a church or a Christian, but either way, this is how many functionally view God. I like the word functionally view God there because a lot of us will say, no, 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 God loves us unconditionally, blah, 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 blah. But then the way we act and the way we act towards God and our relationship with Him, functionally, we actually think, oh, He's out to get me, right? Is that how we view God? At times, maybe? Or better yet, how do, how do we think God views us? There's a, a story from my childhood, which I've told a couple times before, but it's always, it always fits perfectly here, so I'm, I'm going to tell, tell it to you again. You might remember it. But I was around eight years old, and on a cold fall day, and, and because of my own recklessness and my own foolishness, I'll admit, the one time I was reckless and foolish, I, I fell into a pit of mud, completely wrecking my clothes and, and losing a shoe. It just got stuck in there. And, and I remember as I walked home that day uh, that I was imagining all the ways that my mom would punish me and yell at me because I deserved it. But yet the opposite occurred. As she opened the door to see me stand, standing there covered from head to toe in muck, shivering in, in the cold, missing a shoe, she was definitely surprised and shocked, a little disappointed, I'm sure, understandably so. But mostly I, I remember her motherly compassion in that moment as I apologized and she immediately removed my dirty clothes, brought me in out of the cold, and then of course gave me a nice hot bath, which to this day is still the best bath ever. And, and what I'm wondering is, is, is that the image we get when we think of the way God sees us and, and treats his children when they come before him all dirty and filthy like that? As a, as a God of compassion and mercy who desires to lift us up and clean us up. It should be. That should be how we view God because that's who he is. And it's actually even better than that. Zephaniah tells us that when we turn back to him with repentant hearts and allow him to restore us, not only will that cause us to rejoice over him, but even before that, he's actually rejoicing over us. This is, this is the heart of God for his people. Listen to this, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior bringing victory, and he will create calm with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. I think this concept can be hard for us to grasp sometimes, 
especially for those of us that, that feel unworthy or like we're unlovable. But here's the amazing truth. That despite our sin and shame and imperfections, God loves us. God rejoices over us, over you. In fact, he sings over us. And, and remember, he proclaimed this promise over a people that had completely turned from him and, and hated him. And, th- and this is the underlying message of Zephaniah to the nation of Judah, that even though, yes, they were headed into a season of discipline, which they'd brought on themselves, starting with the day of the Lord and exile into Babylon, God would also make a way for a remnant of his people to come back to him, to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to be restored. A people he could dwell with, calm with his love, and rejoice over. And this is who he calls in in Zephaniah 2.3 when he says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. He's calling this remnant to come back to him. But we also find that this call to humility and righteousness, to redemption, isn't isn't just for the people of Judah. We find out that it's for all nations. In fact, God's mercy and compassion is is so wonderful that Zephaniah proclaims to them that it extends beyond his own people, that his grace is far-reaching and it's unifying. Zephaniah 3.9 says, At that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the day of Pentecost was the beginning of this prophecy coming to fruition, a moment in which we see that peoples of all nations uh, and languages would begin to hear the gospel of salvation and be gathered into the kingdom of God as one people, that is, citizens of one kingdom. Calling upon the name of the Lord and serving him with one accord. And can, you, can you imagine God's song on that day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls came to the Lord at one time. Again, this is, this is the heart of God. He doesn't delight in wrath or discipline. He delights in mercy. He delights in blessing, in restoration. He delights in his people. He delights in you, in each of you. All he requires is that we turn to him with repentant hearts and humble hearts in the name of Jesus Christ. And on that end, I'm going to change gears here a little bit, even though I'm supposed to be preaching on Zephaniah. What, what I want to do right now is, is actually go through Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son for a bit, because I feel like it's really a perfect summary of the message of Zephaniah, the story of a God who rejoices over his wayward son who has returned. So if, if you'll bear with me, we're going to read through Jesus' parable of the prodigal son right now, and I just pray that we would just glean from it and, and just receive what, what Jesus has for us in, in this parable. So Luke 15, 11 to 32. Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. 
Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate. Gross. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. And so he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I, I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, coming in from the field. He approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, Your brother has arrived and and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, Look, I've served you all these years, and I never disobeyed your instruction, yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I love that last line when, when the father says, we had to celebrate. We had to. There was, there was no other option. He was lost and is found. He, he was dead and is alive. It's time to sing. It's time to party. As Zephaniah proclaims as well, this is the affection of God for us when we return to him, when we turn to him. But like the younger son, we we don't always do that, do we? So he had a a relationship with his father, but yet he chose to take his his share of the family inheritance and, and just peace out. He ditches his father and family business, which was one of the greatest insults of the day for a son to do. Not only an insult to his father, but to the whole community as well, to just up and leave. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care about their feelings. He's never coming back. They're dead to him and he to them. And so he takes it all and then he moves to some ritzy neighborhood and starts living the the high life, fine wines, expensive clothes, prostitutes, parties. He's loving the freedom of just getting to do whatever he wants which, by the way, is our our culture's perceived road to happiness, autonomy. 
It's not working, though, is it? As Joshua Ryan Butler writes, this is our story as, as well. We want to rule the world without God. We want to live our lives in independence rather than communion. We snatched the billions and bolted for the distant land, grabbing what we could to live without him. But beyond the horizon lies destruction. We have squandered dad's generosity on ourselves. Zephaniah prophesies that this is the plight of the people of Judah as well. They've taken what God's given them and they've ran from God. But of course, rock bottom comes swiftly. One day it's the high life and the next... The younger son's credit card bounces, there's famine, and he's left with nothing. Forced to take a job for a Gentile pig farmer. And, and I'm not sure if there's anything worse than for a Jew to be working on a pig farm. Not kosher at all. But that's, that's all he has going for him. Little money, no food, no friends, no family, and he smells like pigs. A total disgrace. He's pretty much sunk in the lowest one could go. His sin and, and selfishness have left him miring in the mud of a pig pen. But that's his chastisement. The, the consequence for his sin, which he brought upon himself, just as the people of Judah had, had done in their own sin and rebellion and, and idolatry, which would eventually bring them into the miry pit of exile in the pagan nation of Babylon, So anyways, the prodigal son's only option at that point is to grovel back to his dad for a job because he thinks even the servants get, get paid more and have more food than, than he does. But we need to understand that in those days, returning home after something like this was, was unheard of. He actually ran the risk of being stoned to death if he returned home. That's how much of a big deal this was. What he did was socially and religiously uncool. And I bet the Pharisees listening to Jesus' parable at this point were probably expecting the story to end that way. And the son returned home and they stoned him. The end. And they probably would have cheered. But again, this son, he's got no other options. So he takes the risk, he, he heads home embarrassed, ashamed, guilt-ridden, dirty, ready to apologize in the hopes of just getting a, a sliver of forgiveness, of mercy, just enough that his dad would be willing to, to let him be a hired hand, one of, the, one of the servants. And I'm sure he's probably expecting some sort of harsh but totally justified punishment or discipline to come his way as well. This is when the beautifully unthinkable thing happens. Verse 20. It says, while he was still a long, long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. The image we get here is that God is a God who never gives up on us, who's always waiting for us to turn back to him from our sin. And we see that it's even better than that. The father was waiting for him, watching for him, looking out for his return, hoping and longing for it. And then as soon as his son came over the horizon, he was moved with such a deep compassion and love that he ran out to meet him. And even though his son probably smelled like pig excrement, was covered in mud, 
wore ragged clothes. The father hugged him and kissed him. It didn't matter what condition the son was in. He loved him. But it gets better because then his compassion and love turns to rejoicing. He's barely even heard his son's attempt to repent. He's over that already. Instead, he immediately gets his son new clothes, new sandals, and even a ring on his fingers. And then, and then he orders his servants to kill the fattened calf. Not a cheap thing to do. And to top it off, he throws a party, food, music, dancing, singing. Because his son is home once again. He was dead to them, but is now alive. And, and just imagine how the younger son is feeling in that moment. If it, if it was me, I'd be in a state of, of shock and awe. Like, like wait a minute, I, I don't deserve this. At the same time, though, I'd be filled with such relief and comfort and joy for not only being forgiven, but also welcomed back with open and affectionate arms. This is, this is the grace of God. This is the grace of God. Again, as the Lord says in Zephaniah, I will dwell with you. I will calm you with my love. I will rejoice over you with singing. And here we see the father doing just that with his wayward son. He welcomed the son, not with guilt, but with forgiveness and compassion. He melted the son's anxiety and shame away in a single moment of love and joyful affection. He stripped away any feelings of, of worthlessness by clothing him. Sacrifi sacrificing the fattened calf, throwing a feast, and having a party for his return. Again, this is the prophecy of, of Zephaniah, that while God is going to allow his people to, to reap the seeds of sin and rebellion, which, which they've sown over the last couple hundred years, yet the moment they turn back to him, He's going to run out and meet them and rescue them and clean them up and remove their shame and calm their fear with his love and then rejoice over them with singing. Is this how we imagine God receiving us when we, when we turn to him with our guilt and with our shame? Is this the way we think God sees us? As children to delight in and rejoice over? Well, he does. That is how he sees us. And he sings about it. He's, he's singing right now. In, in Zephaniah 3.15, he says, The moment he's going to sing over them is when the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear evil again. This, this is talking about Jesus, right? The king of David. He's in our midst. He's come to us. He's ushered in his kingdom. And through the victory of his death and resurrection, God has rescued us and cleaned us up. And because of him, God's now rejoicing with all the heavenly creatures over our salvation. He's singing over us. I've only been sung to a few times in my life, I'm usually the one doing the singing, if you know what I mean. But there's something about it that can't be described, right? Most of us probably only experience someone singing to us on our birthday, maybe, right? You know, when the happy birthday song is sung to us, 
And you're kind of sitting there all awkward and weird, right? But, but even something as cheesy or awkward or normalized as that, even for those 30 seconds, it certainly makes us feel valued and appreciated, loved even, right? And so to know that the God of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, is, is doing it over you, that's... That's mind-blowing. We can hardly even fathom that. That God rejoices and sings over me? Who am I that he should love me? But he does, and he does with such affection that he has to sing about it. Theologian Sam Storms writes, Zephaniah 3.17 has led me to a simple but startling conclusion. What makes life livable is enjoying the joy that comes from knowing one is enjoyed by God. This, this, is, this, in, this in no way minimizes our responsibility to love God, but our love for God is a reflex of His love for us. He loved us first. I bet many of us, though, probably as a result of different experiences, circumstances, relationships in our past and in our present are believing the opposite or believing the lie that we're unlovable, that there's no way God could delight in you. Maybe we feel we're too small or insignificant to be loved or too ugly or too overweight or too skinny or not accomplished enough, too poor or too sinful, too dirty too guilty and deserving of punishment or whatever it is, maybe because of something you've done or something done to you. But like both the nation of Judah and the younger son, remember they were the lowest they could go, the dirtiest they could get, emotionally, socially, spiritually, religiously. And yet, the moment they set their faces toward home. The Father raised them up to the place of highest honor. Dr. Jack Deere puts it so simply when he says, many in the church today are convinced God is angry with his people, but they have no idea how crazy he is about them. God is crazy about you. Yes, with, with all your imperfections. He's not waiting to punish you and shame you or guilt trip you into following him. He's waiting to run out to you and hug you and kiss you and sing over you if only you turn to him. Look at the end of the book of Revelation. What do we find if we read through that? A party. Drinking wine and eating a meal with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords at his table. So Genesis starts with mankind taking our inheritance and running from God in shame. But Revelation ends with a party of victory and reconciliation with God. This is the prophecy of Zephaniah. And God wants you at that party. He wants to throw a party in your name. He wants to sing over you. 
He desires that so much that Jesus, the Son of God, King of Kings, willingly paid the price for our waywardness and our rebellion by becoming the perfect sacrifice for us at the cross. So that through him, through his victory over sin and death, God can strip us of our rags and bring us into his house clothed in Jesus Christ's glory and righteousness. Through his sacrifice, we can feast and commune with God at his table, at his party, where he's singing over us. Think of, think of it like this. Right after Jesus was baptized, it, it, it says in Matthew 3, 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So when we repent and believe in the name of Jesus, this is what happens. God sees us the same way he sees his Son. In other words, that same loving voice from heaven sings the same declaration over us, over each of you. This is my child with whom I am well pleased. Make no mistake, God delights in you. Yes, you. As Sam Storms again writes, God loves us with all our faults and failures, with all the secret sins no one knows about. In fact, he rejoices over us so much that he breaks out in inexpressible joy and song as he thinks about us. Again, sometimes I think we get this backwards. We think, we think God and his holiness is allergic to our sin. Like, like as soon as he sees it or comes near it, he's going to break out in hives or something. Or that he's just put off by us because of it. But that way of thinking just gives off the wrong impression. It makes us run and hide from God like, like in shame like Adam and Eve did. Instead of turning to him for help. Joshua Ryan Butler again writes, God's not worried that he'll be affected by our sin, but that we will. Because sin can't stand to be in the presence of God. He's worried about us. God desires to be with us. He's chasing after us, coming into our mess time and time again. Which is exactly what Jesus did. Came into our mess. Our sin didn't stop him from loving us. In fact, while we were sinners, he showed his love by dying for us. And yes, sometimes our sin leads to earthly consequences and much-needed discipline. A good father disciplines his children. But it never stops him from pursuing us. In fact, his discipline is always meant to, to, to turn us back to him. Because he wants to dwell with us. And there's no sin that God's grace and mercy cannot forgive. Especially because the good news of the gospel is that his love isn't based on how good or bad we are at all. As the older brother in the parable also found out and and sadly rejected, God's love for us is based on who God is and what he's done for us. The younger son did nothing, nothing to earn his father's love. In fact, everything he did should have made the father hate him. But yet the moment he turned his face toward home, the father's love overwhelmed him with visible and resounding joy. He'd forgotten everything the son had done. His sin didn't define him. His past mattered little. What mattered, what brought the father joy was that he was home. 
And it's with that same joy set before him that Jesus went to the cross. That joy of knowing that through his perfect sacrifice, God's wayward children can return home. That the lost will be found, that the old will be made new, that the dead will be made alive, that God will be glorified. That joy of knowing that God could finally throw us the party he's been organizing and longing for, even from the moment we left and rebelled against him. So yes, God loves us. He sings over us. And the question for us then is how do we respond to that? How do we respond to a God who rejoices and sings over us? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 21, when he says, enter into the joy of your master. I love that. Enter into the joy of your master. His joy for us is meant to fill us with an overwhelming joy for him. And so as we humble ourselves and and move now into taking communion this morning, let us then enter into his joy And then as we respond with worship, let us us do so knowing that we're actually joining in the chorus with God, who first sang and is still singing over us. Again, as it says in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior bringing victory. He will create calm with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Mm -hmm.